I want to ask the rest of you to open in your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to us about kingdom living. I know uh, last week was a rather heavy topic as we discussed what it meant to be guilty of murder. When the law says that we shall not commit murder, of course, most of us in our, in our own minds think, well, I've never killed anybody. But when we look at the way Jesus interprets the text, essentially what he tells us is that if we have hatred in our heart, then we have already committed murder. Because it is the issue of the heart that is at stake. And this is what Jesus continues to speak to us about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's he's began by telling us about the characteristics of what it means to be a child of God, a child of the kingdom. And we looked at the Beatitudes and he says, you know, you need to be poor in spirit. You need to mourn over your sin. You, You know, all of these things, all these characteristics that speak to us about what it means to follow after God and to have our heart, have a heart for God. And then he reminds us that not only should we have that characteristic, but we ought to express that characteristics, those characteristics rather, as the salt and light of the earth. We ought to impact the world around us by demonstrating faithfulness to the Word of God. And then also, Jesus comes along, and, and as he continues to preach and speak, he talks about the importance of God's law. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And it's, and it's this aspect of fulfilling the law which seems almost out of place in, in recognition of all that Jesus is about to speak. But what we have to remember is when Jesus is preaching this sermon, he is preaching looking forward to what he was about to do on the cross. When we look at this sermon, we're looking back at what Jesus has already accomplished. So we have a certain amount of insight and understanding to where Jesus was leading the people in this sermon that they didn't necessarily have. But we can, looking back at what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, understand with a greater clarity the purpose for which Jesus was preaching, which was to bring conviction on the hearts of his people in order that they might turn to him. Now, when we read through this section as Jesus is dealing with the law, when he's dealing with the aspects and interpretation of the law, not in accordance with what the scribes and the Pharisees had taught them. What Jesus tells us repeatedly is that the scribes and the Pharisees, they had basically reduced the law to a bunch of rules that they could follow so what they, by, and by doing so, they had failed to divine the intent of the law, which was to bring us before the throne of grace in humility and in dependence on God. And so Jesus is reminding us that the purpose of the law is to reveal our hearts. And understanding that only, or as we are found guilty before the Lord, that our only hope is found in Him. That is the reality from which we interpret and understand what Jesus said, that we have been saved by the shedding of Christ's blood. And we are now called to represent 
him to the world. You see, our salvation is not primarily about us just having a peace of mind, but is really about our peace with God and his purpose and desire to work through us for his glory, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus declares that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we won't even see the kingdom of heaven. Why does he tell us that? Because you can't earn your way into heaven. None of us are good enough. We talked about it, we talked about it last week. We, we all recognize that we've sinned. We all recognize that we've messed up. We all recognize that we've fallen short of God's standard. What we fail to recognize is just how bad our situation is. We know we're bad, we just don't think we're that bad. But Jesus has a very different perspective as he speaks to us and exposes the reality of our hearts before a holy God. You know, we have a tendency to think about our hearts in some mysterious way as if our heart has some insight some infallibility about it. I mean, we encourage our children to follow their hearts so that their dreams might come true. We justify our actions by saying, I know deep in my heart that this is right. You know what the Bible says about our heart? Don't trust it. Right? Jeremiah 17, 9, what does it say? The heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful. How can we trust a deceitful thing? Jesus affirms the basic tendency of the heart, not toward truth and unrighteousness, but toward sin and wickedness. Later on in in the same gospel, Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that come from the heart. This is why our heart is not trustworthy. This is why our heart is not the infallible authority in our life. You want an infallible authority in your life? Pick up the Word of God. Listen to what it says. Jesus is, comes to us in the Sermon on the Mount to help us to understand the purpose of the law to help us understand how it is often misinterpreted and how it ought to be understood. He wants us to understand our guilt, but he also wants us to have hope in him. He teaches us of our guilt so that we might look to him for forgiveness and a new heart that is made righteous in him and desires to follow the law. Not that following the law gets us into heaven. We don't follow the law to be saved. We follow the law because we are saved. We follow the law not to attain to heaven, but because we are its citizens. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning, in fact, back in verse 21 where we started last week and on through the end of the chapter, Jesus speaks of six teachings from the Old Testament law beginning with the law concerning murder, which we looked at last week, and moving on to the law against adultery, which we'll be focusing on this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as we read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning 
in verse number 27. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we ask for understanding of this difficult word. Difficult in that it convicts. Difficult in that it points out our heart attitude. Father, let your Spirit work in us to bring us to conviction, to lead us to repentance, and to strengthen us in our obedience to you. As I proclaim your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to speak only those things which are in accordance with your word, that support and uphold and explain appropriately. And Father, if there be anything that comes from me that is not of you, Father, I pray that you would give us forgetful ears. But Lord, let us hold fast to those things which give us a greater understanding to the truths conveyed here, that we might be changed by them and that we might grow in faith and wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Be seated. So once again, as Jesus is speaking to us of really Old Testament law, the and the first, these first two, the, the law against committing murder and the law against adultery, these, of course, they come from the Ten Commandments. And, and Jesus is demonstrating um, to his audience and to us with, with his explanation and application of God's law the absolute absurdity of self-righteousness. That is what Jesus wants us to see, that we cannot in and of ourselves be righteous before God. His remarks here focus on, this remarks on adultery focus on two areas that we need to be aware of when it comes to recognizing and dealing with sin in our life, and that is the areas of the mind and the body. The applications of which are much more serious than we are off, off excuse me, than we are often comfortable teaching or sharing with others, yet it is undeniably what Jesus taught. And so he begins by reminding us that the battle over the sin, or over sin, begins in the heart. Look with me again at verse 27 and 28. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, the, the heart issue is not typically, I think, what we think of when we think of sin. When somebody talks about sin, when they mention sin, typically the thing that they immediately begin to think of is a certain actions that take place, certain things that we've done, certain outward expressions that we know are wrong, 
and we recognize that God doesn't approve of those actions, and so we recognize that they are sinful because of the impact that they have on others. Or if we're knowledgeable of God's Word, we recognize they go against His, His Word for proper behavior. But as we said last week, the recognition of sin in our life is not typically the problem. It's recognition that our sin is as bad as God says it is, which is a whole lot worse than we think it is. We have a tendency, and I would even go a little bit further than that, to say that not only do we not recognize that our sin is as bad as it is, but we have a tendency to try and justify certain things in our life, certain things that we do, to justify them and make them not seem sinful. I mean, we have we, we, might, we might say, well, I know that God's Word says I shouldn't do this, but if I do this and I, and I think this and these are my motivations, then it's really okay. And so we try to justify ourselves by our motivations. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount in this section of the text, He's exposing our motives for self-justification. He's exposing the reality that our desire is to see ourselves as good people. And He says, but you're not. Not in accordance with God's Word, not in accordance with what He calls good, because we can't be good in and of ourselves. Only through Him can we attain to what is called righteousness. And so, so He's seeking to move us to a place of recognizing our sinfulness and the impact that it has on us and the degree to which we need to go to avoid sin, to root out sin, and to overcome sin. And so he begins by exposing our expectation. First of all, and when he says in verse 27, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. Or com Sorry, still stuck in last week. You shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said. Now, Notice, he didn't say it was written, even though this is exactly what was written. So when he says, when he says, when you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, he's pointing out a, a insufficiency of our understanding of what we've heard about the command. This is what he's saying to his audience. He says, you have heard the law, right? I mean, this is what God's law says, but what you've understood has not been the fullness of what God intended. Because what do people understand when they think of the, the command, you shall not commit adultery? He says, well, you know, basically that, you know, that married people shouldn't be with other people who aren't their spouse, right? That's the very strict definition of what adultery is. It's a married person lying with another person who is not their spouse. That is adultery. Jesus says, listen, it's a whole lot more than that. When you understand the intent of the law and the purpose of the law, it's, it's more than the strict definition allows. It goes beyond that to the heart and intent. And, and while, the, while the Pharisees were trying to, to uphold the law in, in a sense that they were trying to make themselves righteous, they actually diminished the law in failing to understand that it was bringing them, it was supposed to bring them under condemnation. We have, we have one expectation of what it says, and there's another expectation of what it actually means. And so Jesus goes from our expectation to his explanation. And verse 28 is his explanation of the law and what it actually 
is intended to bring about in our lives. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He shows us that the law against adultery is not just a matter of semantics. There's not a way to justify, say, well, I've done this, but I haven't done this, or I went this far, but I didn't go this far, so it's not really adultery. And see, that's the way the, the scribes and the Pharisees, that's the way a lot of people approach sin in their life. They, they look at the letter of the law, and then they draw these imaginary lines in the sand about how far they think they can go without actually committing sin, and what they're doing is they're actually exposing the reality of their heart towards sinfulness rather than seeking to understand the guilt that they have already incurred because their desire is for themselves rather than for God. So no matter how you spin it, you cannot justify yourself under the true intent of the law. Because the law, God's law, is given to us to reveal our heart. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word lays bare the intent of our heart. The heart, of course, is not just this organ that beats and pushes blood through our body. It's not just the center of emotion. It's not, it's not just the center of feelings, but it is also the center of thought. It is our thoughts. It is our desires. It is, it is our emotions that, that we relate to the heart. And here Jesus is revealing that the issue of our guilt is not isolated to the outward actions that we take, but it is the inward desires that we dwell on. This is what incurs guilt. We may be able to think ourselves righteous according to the letter of the law, but certainly not to its intent. If we think even, you, if you were to narrow down God's law just to the Ten Commandments, how many of those do you think you have kept? I mean, you start to look through it. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, we know we do that because we give other things priority over God all the time in our life. You shouldn't have any idols. Well, we know that because we worship things like money and we worship prosperity and we worship those things which they may not be graven images in the sense of a, of a wooden statue, but they are idols in our life nonetheless. Do we, do we uh, ever take God's name in vain? Probably, I would say many of us in here probably may not have done it for a while, but I think at some point in our life, we know that we have. I think when you think about keeping the Sabbath holy, that's one of the commandments. Of course, there's, I, we could spend a lot of time talking about this as far as its application in New Testament saints, but the reality is, is the principle of the Sabbath is that God designed us for rest. The Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, but God designed us to have a day of rest and a day of worship, and we don't always honor that principle. Do we, do, have we always honored our father and our mother in accordance with the Ten Commandments? No, I think a lot of us recognize that we have failed to do that. Do we, have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you, even if it's something small? I think most of us recognize that 
somewhere along the line, we've probably maybe even unintentionally taken something that wasn't rightfully ours and used it for, for our own purposes. Have you ever told a lie in misrepresenting yourself to accomplish your own purposes? Have you ever longed for something that didn't belong to you? I mean, I think when it comes to the Ten Commandments, the only two things that typically stand out where we think we might be able to, to say, hey, I've been able to keep this are the laws of not committing murder and not committing adultery. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, I understand, I understand where you're going with that, but even those two you're guilty of. That's the intent of the law. It's to drive us to the reality of our depravity and of our guilt and of our condemnation. Why? Why would God want to bring us to such a place as where we feel condemned? Because when you get to the place where you sense the weight of your guilt, the only place to go is to God. And that's what He wants from us. He wants us to turn to Him. To recognize we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves, but only through Him. And He tells us that we are guilty. He establishes this guilt without a doubt. Whoever looks Everyone who looks upon, who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust, what is lust? It's a longing desire for something, usually a sexual desire for someone. Now, looking with lust is more than just noticing an attractive person. Let's not over-apply what the Word of God says, okay? But what do you do when you notice that attractive person? Where does your mind go? Where do your thoughts go? Where do, where do your eyes linger, or do they? Well, the teaching is, <clears throat> excuse me, to look with lust is, is to entertain the desire for them physically when they are not yours to have. While the teaching is directly targeted towards married people in the context of adultery, its obvious application extends well beyond those who are married. The, the use of everybody, the use of, of immorality, even the, even the further explanation that we're going to get here in just a minute in verses uh, 29 and 30 speak of sin beyond that of simple, the simple uh, and specific definition of adultery. But everyone who, everybody who looks with desire to have someone who is not rightfully theirs in accordance with God's definition of marriage has committed adultery. You know, God made us, He created us to be sexual creatures. He created us to be able to enjoy that expression in our life, but He's given us very specific parameters by where that is appropriate in His sight. Very specific parameters. Just as He does with just about everything in life. You think about God, God created us to work. I don't know if y'all realize that or not, but even before the curse, God gave Adam a job in the garden. God created us to work. He created us to be productive members of society, to, to earn our living, to, to reap the benefits of our labor. That's what He created us for. And He allows us to enjoy the fruit of our labor. But if we attain to prosperity in a way that dishonors God, as His child, you're not going to be allowed to enjoy that. 
You might be able to enjoy it for a time if, you're, if you don't know him, but if you're in a right relationship with God, you can't enjoy the things that you've attained outside the boundaries for which he's set. And just as it's true in work, it's true in marriage. It's true in relationships. God has given us design. He's given us direction. He's given us order. And when we violate that, there are repercussions. There are consequences. There is a reality of guilt which we are incurring upon ourselves. And he's going to expound on that in, in the following verses, in verses 31 and 32. And, and we're going to get to that next week. But the point is made here that our guilt is established by the law by revealing our heart's intent. And so because it is about revealing our heart, we have to understand that that's where the battle begins. The battle for purity, the battle for holiness, the battle for obedience, it begins in the heart. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to cause confusion in what all that Jesus means for us to understand, but there's a dual purpose in recognizing the truth of the law as Jesus explains it. First and foremost, it's meant to lead us to the reality that we are all guilty, convicted by the intent of our heart and thoughts and the thoughts that we entertain in our mind. That guilt is meant to lead us to a place of repentance from our sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost the intent here. As Jesus is leading us to recognize our guilt, he wants us to understand that we, our only hope is in him. Don't miss that. Because a lot of times we can approach these kinds of texts and we can miss the fact that the, what, what the cross has accomplished and the freedom that Christ has given us through that, and we, and we make it all about, just like the scribes and Pharisees, all about trying to keep a bunch of rules. Listen, God didn't create us to keep a bunch of rules. God created us to reflect His glory to the world around us. And the only way to do that is to have a right relationship with Him. So first and foremost, the reality of our guilt is meant to bring us into a right relationship with God. As we recognize we can't do it on our own, we are solely and entirely dependent upon Him. Don't miss that. That is of first importance. But there's still meaning here for those of us who have been born again. There's still application for those of us who have been forgiven in Christ. There's still a, something for us to learn who, who aren't under condemnation. We need to recognize that we're still battling the flesh. We're still, we still have battles in the mind that we have to win. Because while sin has been ultimately taken care of, that does not reduce the cost of sin that is incurred when we disobey God. Our sin is paid for in Christ, but there are still consequences for failing to be obedient for us who are believers. There are still consequences for offending God. He has saved us to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. That likeness, that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life that transforms us to holiness begins through a surrendered thought life and a leading of the Holy Spirit. The battle for purity and for a life that testifies of the power of Christ begins in our hearts. And if we fail to bring our hearts under control, 
sin leads to further, the sin in the heart leads to further sin in the flesh. While the battle begins in the heart, it continues as we fight in the flesh. This is where verses 29 and 30 come in as Jesus continues to speak on the reality of guilt and the cause of sin. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Rarely is sin only expressed in the heart. We have a tendency to utilize our flesh to indulge our desires, whether by looking or acting, as represented by the hand and the eye. By looking leads to lust, which leads to actions that lead to guilt, further guilt. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is the reality of sin. This is the conviction, the condemnation that comes from sin. A look can lead to impure thoughts, which lead to impure actions, which is the sense of stumbling that we see in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye or your right hand makes you stumble, comes from the Greek word skandalizo. Can you guess what word we get from there? scandalize. Sin scandalizes our life. It causes hurt to us and to others, and if not dealt with effectively, it leads to destruction. That destruction is pictured in two references to hell. Once again, that's a translation of the Greek Gehenna, which refers to the valley there outside of Jerusalem where There was a perpetual burning of garbage. It was an area that was defiled in in the old times by by the Israelites when they sacrificed their children to foreign gods, and they defiled the land. And when Israel was, after Israel was taken into captivity and they came back into the land, the land was only good because it had been defiled through child sacrifice. It was only good for burning garbage. And they had fires that burned continually in that valley. And so it was a very vivid picture in the minds of Jesus' audience of what he meant. When he talked about Gehenna, they understood that it was a reference to the eternal suffering of the soul as pictured through that very real place in their lives that they could look to and and see and and have that picture of, of suffering and torment before them. Guilt brings suffering. It brings death. It brings destruction. Jesus made plain that the guilt was undeniable. Although it's unlikely that he actually intends self-mutilation as a means to avoid judgment. I mean, after all, don't we all recognize that if you, if you become guilty of sin, whether it was your hand that led you to do it or whether it was your eye that led you to do it, if you remove one of those things, it doesn't remove your guilt. You don't become guilty in your eye. You don't become guilty in your hand. You become guilty in your soul. 
your soul bears the guilt. So removing one of those things doesn't remove condemnation. So what is it that, although I will say this, there have been those over the years in, in the history of the church even that have taken this teaching of Jesus very literally. One of the early church fathers, Origen, um, guy in the, in the second century, became so convicted in studying this passage of Scripture that he had himself castrated in order to avoid sexual sin. This is not what Jesus intends by this passage. How do we know? Well, just like I just told you, because removing a part doesn't remove the guilt of the whole. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? What is it that he wants us to understand from this? He's using, he's using exaggerated language. He's using hyperbole to, to make and emphasize a point. And while I don't think any of us are in danger of interpreting this as self-mutilation as a means of of uh, controlling sin. I think a lot of people, while, while they tend to take it too literally, while some people take it too literally, as we saw with Origen, I think the real problem for most people is that they don't take it seriously enough. It's not meant to be taken literally, but it is meant to be taken seriously. That's the point that Jesus was making. He was saying that because of the high cost of sin, because of the impact that sin has in our lives. It needs to be dealt with aggressively. It needs to be dealt with emphatically. And this is what Jesus wants us to understand. After all, as I said, we're looking back at what, at what Jesus already accomplished, even though at the time he preached the sermon, he hadn't been to the cross yet, but we knew where he was going. And so when we recognize the high cost of sin, we recognize that Jesus came in order that he might demonstrate to us what sin costs. And so if you think about the end of Jesus' life, what did he subject himself to? He submitted himself to what? To a false arrest, false accusations, to spitting, slapping, mockery. He subjected himself to having his flesh torn open by a cord of whips. He subjected himself to having a crown of thorns pressed down into the flesh of his forehead. He subjected himself to being nailed to a Roman cross and having his blood poured out as people ridiculed and mocked him. He subjected himself to all of those things in order that we might have a picture of what sin costs. And not just sin in total, but every sin individually costs a life, incurs a death sentence. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to pay. And so while he has paid the debt of sin that we owe, if we have faith in him, that does not remove us from the responsibility of dealing drastically with sin in our life. The Lord desires to keep us from indulging in that which cost Him so much. And what we need to recognize, first of all, is if you are not in Christ, if you don't truly know Him, if you haven't received His forgiveness, that's what awaits you. Destruction. 
if you are walking with Christ, if you have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, been given a new heart. Sin doesn't condemn us to hell, but it does bring discipline. God has promised discipline for His children. And in fact, if you claim to be a child of God and are without discipline, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that you are an illegitimate child and not and do not belong to Him because God disciplines His children in order to move us to purity, to holiness. Jesus means for us to understand the depth of pain which sin causes. Every sin is worthy of a death sentence because it is an offense against a pure, holy, and just God. And we need to take it seriously. And we need to recognize the extremes which we may have to go to deal with sin in our life. Not to the point of self-mutilation, but maybe you recognize the influence of sin in your life and where it comes from and where temptation drives from and And maybe you need to throw out a computer. Maybe you need to get rid of cable. Maybe you need to take some extreme measures in order to avoid sin in your life. That can sound pretty extreme. Not as extreme as gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. But you get the point. Jesus says, you need to take it seriously. You need to deal with it definitively. You need to do those things practically to help you to avoid sin. We don't always have to be reactive to sin, right? I mean, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So, I mean, so God says... Listen, you're going to be tempted in your life, and you're going to be tempted by the things that tempt a whole lot of other people, but when your focus is on Christ, He's going to show you how to get away from sin. But I'll tell you, that that is in the moment when it comes, when it's unexpected, but because we know it's coming, we can prepare for it. We can be proactive in trying to avoid sin, to avoid temptation. You may not always be able to avoid it, but you can take measures in your life to not put yourself in situations where you know temptation is coming at you. And sometimes that means doing things that are a little bit more extreme, that are a little bit more um, outside of the box so that we might deal with the temptations, especially sexual temptations in life. There's just steps, very practical things that we can do in order to, to help ourselves and to help each other. I'm going to give you just a couple before we close this this morning. So first of all, dress modestly. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? I mean, dress modestly. Guys and girls, dress modestly. Don't dress in such a way as to draw attention to the sensual parts of your body. If you're doing things to draw attention to yourself in order that you might get attention, you're most likely leading somebody else 
into temptation. Now listen, they're still responsible for what they do with that. But why cause a brother or sister to stumble? Dress modestly. It's not, it's not that difficult. Don't be a source of temptation. Listen, at home, at work, if you have, if you have issues with, with, with media, internet, television, use content filters. Look, technology provides all sorts of portals into sexual immorality. But it also provides a lot of safeguards if you're willing to use them. Do the research. Find out what works. Use an internet filter. Use, use a home video filter. Cut out language. Cut out sexual scenes. Cut out those things which, which are inappropriate and which lead to temptation. Flee temptation. When temptation comes your way, run away from it. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is what Joseph did when he was confronted with his master's wife who kept trying to get him to sleep with her. Over and over again, she calls on him, come and lie with me. One day she catches him and, and he says, listen, how can I do this great sin against God? And he flees from her. We need to follow his example. We need to understand that seriousness. We need to cling to integrity and seek to avoid temptation. Know when to run, but also know how to avoid situations so that you don't have to run. Most of you are familiar with the name Billy Graham. Billy Graham was known to be a man of integrity. And one of the reasons he was able to maintain his integrity throughout his life is because he had certain rules that he followed in his life. And one of those rules was that he would never allow himself to be alone with a woman who was not his wife. Now, we live in a world where we say, well, that's just not practical. That's just, that's just ridiculous. We shouldn't have to worry about that. We shouldn't have to do that. We ought to be able to trust each other. We ought to be able to do this. We ought to be able to do that. Listen, if you don't put yourself in a position where inappropriate things can happen, they won't happen. If you don't put yourself in, in a position where someone can misunderstand what's going on, then you don't have to worry about false accusations. Listen, we have to be more concerned with upholding the righteousness of Christ than we are with what the world thinks about us. We need to pursue His righteousness. We need to pursue the calling of God to purity in our life. Remember, it's not just outward appearances and physical relationships that we need to be cautious of because the battle of purity begins where? In the heart, right? And so we need, to, we need to recognize that we need to fight for the purity of our minds and our emotions. A lot of inappropriate and adulterous relationships begin through electronic communications. People share things with, with, with people online, through social media, through text messages, through emails, just chat rooms, all these different things. And they, they, they share things, they make themselves vulnerable, and then they end up in, in an intimate emotional relationship with somebody other than their spouse, which is then an inappropriate relationship and can and often does lead to adulterous relationships. We need to guard ourselves in thought and in action. We need to be careful. 
God has made us for relationships, but he's also set the bounds for what those relationships should look like. When we indulge our desires, whether in our heart or by some act, we become guilty of sin. Thanks be to God that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. But that is not a free pass to do whatever we want. It's not a free pass to fulfill our lusts, even in our mind. It is a call to pursue purity and holiness and truth. We need to take the effects of sin seriously and to deal with it aggressively. I want to close this morning by sharing a, a verse that really popped up on my phone this morning. I don't know if any of you have the Version Bible app, but one of the things it does is it sends you the verse of the day. And the verse of the day today, so appropriate for what we've been talking about this morning. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the convicting power which it brings on us in exposing, Lord, exposing our heart, exposing the reality, Father, that we are guilty before you. And Lord, thank you for offering us forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for affecting our salvation, for bringing us out of darkness and into the light through faith in your name. But Father, I know that there are some here that haven't experienced that reality. And I pray, Lord, that the weight of your word would weigh on them to lead them to a place of repentance and faith. And for those of us, Lord, that have experienced the reality of salvation, that power of the Spirit washing us and making us new, Father, as we recognize our own shortcomings and our own failings in our walk with you, I pray that you would allow us to confess our sins, Lord, in your presence, that we might be cleansed, Lord, afresh and anew, so that so there would be no hindrance in our relationship with you. Father, we fear not eternal condemnation, but we do fear separation. And Lord, so we pray that you would lead us to a place of honest examination, that you would lead us, Lord, that you would search us and expose our hearts before you. That we might know the wonder and the majesty of your forgiving love. That you might draw us close. Clean us off. And embrace us as your children. Give us of your strength, Lord. And teach us to walk in holiness and purity. For the sake of Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray.